Good morning. morning. Glad to see you this morning. I was telling somebody earlier that um, I have a special love for the book of Ezekiel, so I was glad to see that it was one of our readings today. Um, Please pray with me. Father in heaven, we praise your name. We see, Lord, through Ezekiel and through Matthew just how long this history is between you and your people. We're gathered here today to honor you and to hear your word. I pray that you'd be with me as I share my, uh, my thought and, and prayer of this last week or so. I pray that you'd be with all of us, that you'd speak to us in our hearts, that you'd call to those who are yours. In Jesus' name, amen. So, I've actually chosen, as I think it's written up here, to tie in both of the passages, the Ezekiel one and the Matthew one. And the reason for that is that I see some very strong connections. And before we get deep into either one of those, I want to do a little bit of background work on that. Because Ezekiel especially was centered on this concept of having a knowledge of of what righteousness is and wickedness. And it talked a lot about righteousness and wickedness and how the righteous person, if he is righteous all his life, but then at some point decides to turn away, well, he can give all of that up and become wicked and, and vice versa. That was possible as well. Someone who's wicked all of their life can sort of at the last moment, decide to follow the Lord. And so these concepts, righteousness and wickedness, very important there. And and actually, even though they're not used in the same way in the Matthew passage, I hope to show you that there's some very strong similarities in what's being communicated. And so getting that big picture on these two words, what I want to do is go back to creation and to think of Righteousness and wickedness being grounded in that act of creation. As, as Christians, one of our fundamental beliefs is that everything that is was made by a somebody. That someone is the one that we call God. And because it is God who made it, he has every right to be king and judge over it and to ordain the way that it is and to side what is good and what isn't. And God rightfully, therefore, expects us to live in such a way that we are obedient to, but also in harmony with the desire that he had when he made everything. And so we have this notion of of God as, as master. And what is really incredible is that in addition to that, what God wants is to also be a father to us. I have this passage from Malachi, chapter 1, verse 6. God is having this disputation with his people. He says this, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts. And so the beginning point of what I want to say is this idea that God is at once master and father. And with that, 
we can see that what we're calling righteousness in the Bible is really the same thing as obedience, which is a key theme in the Matthew passage. Doing what is right is fundamentally doing what God wants us to be doing. And likewise, doing what is wrong is actually refusing to do what God would like us to be doing. And so we can ask ourselves, what is it that God wants us to do? And if we had way more abundant time, we could go through many passages in Old Testament and New Testament, and there are actually lists of examples of what counts as wrong and what counts as right. And what is amazing, really, is the fact that Jesus himself has summarized all of those lists very succinctly for us. And I think we, many of us are familiar with what are called the, uh, the, the two great commandments. Jesus says in, in Matthew 22, so the chapter after what we're reading today, he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And the second, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so we could just touch on a couple examples that, that we would see as very grievous, but we can see why it, it is so. Stealing, for example, is wrong. Why is it wrong? Well, it's because it isn't loving to take something that belongs to somebody else. And therefore, it breaks the order that God has made. We could take another one which, in a way, is, has a, another complexity to it. Right? We, we would tell our children, well, you cannot push somebody down. Well, why? Well, obviously, it's not loving to push someone down. But at the same time, there's a question of honor and dignity, isn't there? Because the person, the God, who created a human being to be upright is dishonored if we've pushed them down. And oppression works in the same way. As we oppress somebody, we disrespect the God who made that person. And so we could keep looking at different examples. And what we see is love or unlove is, is worked out in, in the way that we act, in the way that we speak, and in the way that we think. And so we have, and what I'm trying to, to bring out is that righteousness is fundamentally obedience. And because of that, there's a relational element to it. It's between each one of us and the Great Father. And we can't have a good relationship with our Great Father if we're consistently rejecting what he wants for us. And the same is true of our relationships with each other and with our coworkers and the people that live on our street. We can't actually have good relationship with them if we're not doing what God has asked us to do. God has actually designed it to be harmonious, and, uh, and that's why these lists of rules exist. And to kind of bring that home, I want to look at an analogy, and I think it's a pretty good one. Um, I'm a father of three children, and as a father, one of the things that I'm responsible for is, is to keep my kids safe from any and all danger, and, and that includes danger that might come to one of my children from another one of my children. <laughs> and anyone of you who's, who's had more than one child probably knows what I'm talking about. Let's say I have, I have two kids in a room and I want, I love them both, I want them both to be flourishing, don't I? 
but this has happened. One of them may decide for whatever reason to be hurting the other one. And in that moment, I, as their father, am torn. I'm in a difficult situation. I love them both. But if I have to, I'm going to discipline. I will even remove the one that's hurting the other child from the room. And in that moment, there's something going on that's really profound. It's not just disobedience because they know that I don't want them hurting each other. I've told them that before. But the relationship between the two kids is clearly broken. The relationship between the kid who's hurting the other one and me is now in a difficult situation. And this is really what we're talking about in that Ezekiel passage when God is talking about the righteous people and the wicked people. And if you read the, we skip some of the verses, but if you read those other verses, you have essentially that kind of thing going on. People stealing from each other, people coveting other, the wives of their neighbors and people oppressing each other. And it goes on like that. And so now I actually want to go and consider that Ezekiel 18 passage and then go to Matthew. And as we've seen, there's this assumption in Ezekiel that there are obedient people and there are disobedient people. And the obedient ones, they have this habit of, of honoring God and what they're doing. And the disobedient ones, they have this, this habit of dishonoring God in what they're doing. And this is what I find remarkable about the passage is that as you read it, there's this open door that stands between the two. And God says, essentially, you who are obedient, watch out for yourself because it is possible for you to change, to turn your back on God and go to the other side. And the same is true for the other ones, the ones who, who spent their lives mistreating and dishonoring. They're welcome to take that open door and go to the other side. And though both of those things are in the passage, the focus of the passage is really on this possibility of the wicked changing and becoming obedient. And there is such an urgency in the last two verses, and we're going to read them again very soon, but we see that it's literally a matter of life and death. That the obedient will live and the disobedient will die. This is what God says. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. The great king loves everything, everything, everything that he has made. And the great father loves every single one of us and wants us to enter into a full and eternal relationship with him. And now let's go to Matthew 21, and we're going to see some of the similarities and then one difference between the two passages. You will remember that in Matthew 21, verses 28 to 32, we heard a parable about a father who has two sons, and he sends them out into the vineyard to work. And the first son says, no. I'm not going to do that. No way. But he does change his mind. He eventually does end up going into the vineyard. And the second son says, oh yeah, for sure, dad. 
but he doesn't go. And he actually disobeys his father. And we seem to have a similar situation as in Ezekiel, where we have an, an, what is initially a, a disobedient child and, and what is initially an obedient child, and each one deciding to do the opposite. And so as in Ezekiel, there seems to be a door that's open. And as I move towards what I see as the one difference in the passages, I want to recall the context of Matthew 21. Again, if we had time to read the whole chapter, we would see that this is the first parable that Jesus tells after the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And so there's this, this remarkably energy-filled moment when, when he comes into the city. There are crowds behind him. The people in the city are asking, who is this? And from the moment that he comes, everything that he says and, and everything that he does is being opposed, in particular, by a certain group of people. And they're mentioned to us as the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. And they're coming and they're trying to push back. They're trying to undermine what Jesus is up to. And this parable, if we pay attention, is actually spoken directly and specifically for that group of people. And so, Jesus, if you recall, he's, he begins to talk about John the Baptist. He talks about um, the tax collectors and the prostitutes. And the question then is, which of the two sons, the one who went into the vineyard or the one who didn't, corresponds to the chief priests and the elders, and which one corresponds to the tax collectors and the prostitutes? And of course, if we're paying attention, we see that it's the first son who originally says no, but then goes, that corresponds to the tax collectors and the prostitutes. Jesus says, um, they will go into the kingdom of God before you. And of course, the second son, who originally says yes, but then doesn't go, he corresponds to this group of chief priests and elders. And, and what is really fundamental at this point is, is to understand that those people, the priests, the elders, the scribes, they were 100% convinced without any shadow of a doubt that they're in the group of the obedient people that we've been talking about. And so what Jesus says is an attempt to, to turn upside down their assumptions and their way of thinking, something that they're probably not going to be that friendly toward. Outwardly, like that son, they've made a show of obedience aimed at convincing somebody that they want to be obedient. And what Jesus is revealing is that inwardly, they don't actually have an obedient heart. They haven't begun to walk in obedience. And therefore, for all of their outward religion, their show of obedience in their hearts, they're disobedient right through. And that's the point that, I, that I'd like to sink in for us. The question is this. Actually, I'm not there yet. Rather, it is possible to look religious on the outside, but to have no real and living relationship with God. 
the Father. And the question now is, could that possibly be us this morning? Do you, do I perhaps need to take God's open door invitation today, this morning? Because he says this, for I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. And we may ask, where is that door that I'm talking about? And how do we change a life of habitual disobedience? I've hinted that there is a difference between the Ezekiel and the Matthew passages. And if we're going to be fair to Ezekiel, actually, if we, if we read the whole book, I think we would find that same hint in the book itself. You'll remember, and I'm going to reread this, Ezekiel 18.31 says, Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed, and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die? But, this is actually one commandment that, that no one of us could actually keep. No one could make for him or herself a new heart and a new spirit. And I think what needs to be done is, is not to take it so much as command, but challenge. A challenge that sends us back into self-reflection to see what are our limitations. And I think that's why later in the book, Ezekiel 36, God says this. He says, and I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And so looking closely at, at the commentary that Jesus is making on the parable that we've heard of the two sons, we see that in reality, although we were, we were led to think of a group of obedient people and a group of disobedient people, there are actually two different kinds of disobedient people, fundamentally. There's actually a group who they begin this way, outwardly disobedient. They're going to do what they want to do. They don't really care. Who knows it? That corresponds to the tax collectors and the prostitutes in the parable and its explanation. And then there's another group of people. They too want to do what they want to do. And the difference there is that they put on the show. So that on the outside, they've convinced somebody, or at least that's their goal, that they are obedient when they're not. And what we see is this disjunction in that group and a lack of sincerity. And we can only speculate about what their motivation might be. And, and maybe it's a, it's a desire to please somebody, maybe a parent, or maybe somebody in the community or perhaps it's something that, that being part of the in-group will, will benefit them somehow. This happens sometimes. Whatever is motivating them, the fact remains that they're putting on a show. And perhaps we, like the chief priests and elders, can get to that point where we fool even ourselves. And since, therefore, we all begin in a place of habitual disobedience, we all of us, and repeatedly, need to turn so that we may live. We all need access to that open door that will let us through to the other side. 
And as I approach the end, I ask again, where is that door? And what I'd really like to do is read from John chapter 10. Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. At this very moment, the door to God's eternal kingdom stands open. And if it does stand open, it stands open because Jesus has made certain that it does. The moment in the Gospels when they nail him to that cross, it can appear passive, but it's actually very active on Jesus' part. He has actually thrown himself into a closing doorway so that the door will remain open. And he's done that at great peril, knowing that it could hurt him. And in fact, it costs him his life, doesn't it? It killed him. And what's actually remarkable, even beyond that, is that the life that is awaiting us to be lived on the other side of the door that Jesus holds open with his own self is worth living. Why? Because he didn't stay dead, but he is living even now. Because his life, the one that he mentions in this John 10, is so abundant and overflowing that even if you had nothing else, not a penny and not a scrap of clothing, just a pinch of his inexhaustible life would make you wealthier than you would even know what to do with. And that's the life that Jesus is offering right now, today, and every day. It's a life in relationship with him and with the Father. Finally, it's a life in which obedience comes not from the outside as a burden to be carried, but rather from inside of us as a joy to be shared with our Heavenly Father. Let us pray. Lord God in heaven, we praise you. We praise Jesus, your Son, and we're thankful for his life for the call, as it says, the sheep know his voice and they follow. We pray that you would give us everything that we need to hear your voice today, that we may follow, that we may have life abundantly, that obedience may become for us joy and habitual. 
not a burden, something that makes profound sense to us in this ordered creation which you have made. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.